Hey everyone, welcome to the 44th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Grant Chen. Grant started as a manager for the UCLA men's tennis team in 2001, and in 15 years worked all the way up to becoming an associate head coach, where his teams made the Elite Eight in five of his six seasons. He's currently the head coach for SMU men's tennis, where his teams have won two consecutive conference championships, while he has earned back-to-back Coach of the Year honors as well. On today's episode, we discuss the most devastating NCAA finals loss in history, building a quality team around a player, and some great doubles advice. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Grant, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Johnny. It's great to be here. It's finally, uh, it's like being called up from the the minors to the big leagues. You know, I've been such a fan of your podcast and listen to all your shows and just sitting by the phone waiting for that, uh, that ask. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead since you said waiting by the phone. Before we went live, I asked you if you had two phones and you said you had four. And one of the Instagram questions was from someone who knows you, but they want to know, does anyone in the tennis industry have more contacts on their cell phone than you do? It's possible. I, I think there's certainly, I don't know how many contacts people have. I know how many I have. Um, I also know that uh, I am the first line of defense for a lot of people asking for other phone numbers. Uh, so uh, sometimes I feel like I'm the yellow pages and I should charge, you know, 99 cents per contact. Um, but I'm pushing just a little over, uh, over 10,000. Good God. Okay. So I'm sure everyone listening now knows that we are talking to basically the most connected man in the tennis world. And to get started, we played UCLA. You coached at UCLA before you became the head coach at SMU. And I was the assistant at Duke. And we played in the 2013 NCAA tournament. You guys beat us in the Elite Eight 4-0. It was a little bit closer than that. But at the end of the day, it was 4-0. And you went on to the finals to play UVA. And a lot of people love to come to me and tell me like these players, oh my God, you won't believe this story in this match and you won't believe the the bad luck or the loss or this and that. And at the end of the day, I can believe it. You know, no story is really that incredible, but you guys lost a very tough match to UVA. And I wonder if you can share with the listener what kind of made that match unique. Yeah, well, first off, we, we can talk about the match you're referring to. Um, and I think you know sometimes you remember the losses more than than the wins. Uh, while I do remember playing each other in the quarterfinals because um, I was on two four six, I think Marcus had lost the first. I think we won at four and something like that. But you want to talk about something that would just always be in the forefront of my mind is the finals of the two thousand thirteen NCAA's. It was actually my first full season as Billy's assistant coach. I'd played so many roles before that. Um, and you know we it's it's four three loss to Virginia last match Puget against Mitchell Frank Puget serving five three in the third forty thirty serves in volleys closes the net so hard the ball hadn't bounced a second time his uh, front foots you know slid into the very 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 bottom of the net uh, grazed it and uh, we lose that point it was the correct call because the ball hadn't bounced a second time yet. And when I say bounce the second time, it was going to hit like the adjacent court far, far, far away. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, about 15 minutes later, we lose the match 7-5 in the third. You give Mitchell Frank a, a small, tiny window and, you know, you're, he's going to take a mile. So uh, he gets broken, Mitchell holds, and and that's all she wrote. And uh, that, that was probably one of the 
toughest matches and uh, definitely the most memorable um, that I, I can even recently remember. Um, someone brought it up the other day on on Twitter, and you know, it just kind of all the memories came back. I, I'm embarrassed because I was being a baby. You know, we lost you in the quarters. And some of the guys on my team who were still around for individuals were like, hey, do you want to go watch the finals? And I was like, no, like we're not in the finals. I don't want to be a part of that. Like we're the losers. But then, of course, I couldn't help myself. So I'm watching online on like the live stream. Yeah. And I see that point and it happens. And then obviously the way it went. And I was like, I would never sleep again. Like as a coach, I would be that would they'd be haunting me that number one, how did the official even look? I'd be following the ball. How did he see him graze the yeah, net? No, I mean, yeah, it, it all it all happened so fast. It, it, you know, it is how it is, and uh, it was pretty. <laughs> it took a long time to get over that, you know, and and really, and another interesting thing that happened is about fifteen minutes earlier or ten minutes earlier before that moment, uh, someone really high up in the NCAA tennis committee, and I won't even mention who, made a comment about maybe forewarning me about no. Gatorade splash on the court because the women had to play next or something like that. And I remember talking about the ultimate sports jinx. I didn't even have a reply. I didn't respond. I didn't say anything. And I just remember it was the ultimate sports jinx, you know, and you fast forward 15 minutes and we're collecting a runner up trophy. Um, you know, and you put things in perspective, it incredible accomplishment, but yet it still feels like you know, one of the worst seasons ever, but yet we had gotten second and we were seated one and, you know, it was a hell of a match. It was just such incredible tennis and both teams were so deep and so strong. And, um, but you know, that quarterfinal win was the catalyst that got us there. Right. Of course. You know. Right. Of course. You know, so as a coach, you know, if you're going to, if you want to be in the big time and you want to be winning an NCAA championship or winning your 4-0 league or whatever it is that you are competing in, if you want to be in a big match, you have to be prepared to take big losses. And that obviously was a very difficult loss. How do you take a loss like that and use it as a springboard or an opportunity to grow or improve? You know, we ended up doing quite well the following year. We lost in, I, I believe, the semifinals um, in Athens, Georgia to OU, who lost to SC in the finals. So, you know, the the team was very strong. The core was still there with Novikov and Giron and McCurchian and Puget. So, Still had a great um, roster and, and team, and Crusell was you know five and six in the on the team. Who all those guys end up being top four hundred at some point, and Marcos and Mackey are now in the top 60, 55 in the world. But I think really good experience to try to take away from what you're trying to accomplish year in year out. And uh, you know, as you start every season, you know it's kind of important to remember having some of these tough losses under your belt to be able to you know, build from the next time you're in that same situation. Um, you know, we didn't reach the finals again. I know we've, we've come super close. Um, but I think every season you kind of face new challenges and, uh, the following year, Mackie, uh, Marcos ended up winning the NCAAs in Athens and then turning pro. And then, you know, I think every year you're trying to keep developing and building that team and, you know, trying to set some goals and, and ultimately it's, it's the evolution of the entire season, which makes it fun. And, why we keep coming back in sports. You mentioned Mackie, McDonald, Marcos, and uh, Cressy. Maxime Cressy was also at UCLA during your, during your years, and they've all had great ATP success. They were good players in college, but I remember recruiting them, and they were obviously great players, some of the best players in the country, but it's not like they were 
no doubt top 50 in the world prospects, right? And yet all three of them have done very well as a pro. Was there anything that you guys did at UCLA to like really facilitate their growth and improvement so that they came in as a good player, but they left as a great player ready to take on the ATP tour? You know, I'll never tell you that I'm the reason those guys are, you know, have done well. I think so many people help contribute to their, to their development, their success. Um, and I think we all play a role. And I think part of what we're trying to do is, you know, you, you put good people around you. If I'm a player, you know, you want to build that good support team. If I'm a coach, who do you put around your guys? You know, and they all took very different paths. Mackie played a lot of ITFs in the juniors and, you know, junior grand slams. Marcos played some for sure. Cressy didn't play much because, um, you know, he wasn't as proficient in the juniors. But they've all had one real common thread was a real deep inner belief that they could be successful and that they could utilize their tools and find a way and keep developing at every level of the game. Uh, you know, even let's say Cressy, for example, he always really deep down believes and still believes of his capabilities. And Cressy's goal and, and dream is to be number one in the world. And there's no no one who believes it more than himself. And it 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 just it takes that mindset to know that, hey, look, we're gonna keep putting your foot forward and we're gonna get there at some point. You're you're a unique coach. You're in my in my opinion, you're kind of one of a kind, right? You have a skill that not many people have. And so you kind of mentioned having a team around a player. I wonder if you can share what that team looks like at a UCLA or an SMU and then you know, maybe briefly describe the roles and then kind of the role that you play, which I think is so important that I don't know many coaches who play it better than you do. Well, thanks. I think we all kind of bring a skill set to the game and I think identifying what we're capable and what we're strong at. And, uh, you know, and I think building that team around you of staff uh, for anyone. I mean, if you're a three, five leaguer, if you're a pro, you're a college player at any single level, having the right people, the right voices around you is critical. And identifying what your your weaknesses are. So, you know, you just take um, any given tennis player. Okay, so you probably have coach. You probably have mom, dad, maybe sibling, maybe a trainer, mental coach who can help you problem solve from a sports performance and something between the ears. Maybe a consultant about your diet. Hey, you know, let's let's target more protein and more vegetables as opposed to something else. And, you know, and I think understanding what you really need. Um, certain players have to really focus more on their diet and their fitness and their strength conditioning. And then certain players, maybe it's more of a technical thing with their forehand. So putting the right people and the right voices around and making sure that they all complement. And when everyone really does their role, I think that's when things are done the best and most efficiently. The player is really the hub of the wheel. Um, and, and honestly, I feel like most of the time I'm a little bit of a traffic cop, kind of directing here, directing there. Uh, when do I insert myself in this type of situation, but not in that type of situation? Um, I'm not well versed in like what to do in the gym and proper technique with squats and you know deadlifts. But we have a strength coach who is, and he knows exactly what our athletes need regarding that component. Um, and again, for myself, I think it's just kind of facilitating and putting the right environment around. And that might be as simple as you know, when do you travel? When are you practicing? Well, you know, are we practicing during the day in the heat? Are we practicing under the lights at night, first thing in the morning? Are we hitting twice? Are we hitting once? Um, you know, are we doing yoga at the hotel room to to do do some stretching? So, what really allows our players or the player 
to be able to perform at their peak, at their best, and their optimal on the day of competition. And sometimes it's not even tennis related. You know, you take any given pro, for example, I think a lot of what they need to do is managing their body and how do they get a good night's rest and what type of sleeping conditions they need to be in and what time are they warming up and kind of going through everyone's routine. And in the college, in, uh, in the college environment, I think that's also very delicate because you kind of have eight to 10 players who, who might have their own idiosyncrasies and things. And how do you blend that all together to build a team schedule with a bunch of, you know, so to speak, tennis players who are trying to perform at their individual best. I don't know if you've heard of, I'm pretty sure his name is David Sinclair, but it was, uh, he was like the head of British cycling. And when I hear you talking there, it, it was all about marginal gains, right? And so his thing was like, we're going to figure out what pillow everyone needs to sleep with when they're on the road so they can sleep 1% better. And we're going to paint our facility this color because it might facilitate more energy. And we're going to use this type of hand sanitizer so we get sick less and we can train more. And it was just like detail, detail, detail. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is, you know, whether you have, whether you have your own dietitian, like at a school, obviously they provide that for you, but an amateur player is probably not going to hire a dietitian, a strength coach, a mental coach, an actual tennis coach, pay for a membership. I mean, that's a lot to invest. Although I guess there are probably some foros out there that that might that might want to do that. But it's that idea of like getting one percent better at everything and just being aware of what's out there, and then seeing if there's anyone in your network who can help you with those things. Absolutely, you know, and and I think you even look at pros today. Who is the right fit coach wise? You know, and and you look at the entourage of of these uh, pro players sometimes, and maybe it's just one individual. Sometimes it's nobody. And the analogy I, I always like to use sometimes is you kind of start backwards. If you have your players box and you're playing at Ash, you know, at the U.S. Open on Tuesday night under the lights, and you're the prime time match, and you have twelve seats, who do you want sitting in those twelve seats, and why? Coach K said it. He always talked about, you know, you, everyone's driving their own bus and who do you want on that bus with you? So, um, regarding your team, it's about formulating the right people around you. And some people do have these massive entourages, but it's also remember finding that right coach to essentially be a little bit of your quarterback of your tennis game is important. And then once you have that, listen to that person. What would your best advice be to someone? Because whether you're aware of it or not, there are people on your bus already, right? Yes. So how would how would you know or what's your best advice to help someone figure out if you have productive people on your bus or maybe you need to remove someone from your bus? Yeah, million dollar question. I mean, and I think that's something right there that you just got to be aware of. A little bit, if you want to look at it from a, you know, almost a return on your investment, is someone a high performer, a low performer? What do they bring to the table? You know, are, are they detracting you from your ultimate goal or are they pushing you and supporting you and helping you get to your ultimate goal? And I think we just as players or as coach or, you know, as your own individual game, you, you need to be able to constantly self-assess how all these roles play out. You, myself, a bunch of other coaches, you know, We've been involved at so many different levels, college, pros, juniors. You know, you, you had the, you know, your playing career was 10,000 times mine. Um, and I think we all have a different understanding of what we, what we need for ourselves or our own players. And I think that's something that we had to really constantly be aware of. And at some point, if someone is kind of 
hurting you or slowing you down or maybe just being a little bit of a deterrent, then you've got to make some adjustments. Because I think the toughest thing is when people and their role and your little support team, everything starts to get a little bit blended together. So the physio is worried about your tennis, your, your tennis coach is worried about your diet, your diet person's worried about this. And then next thing you know, there's, there's, there's just too many voices. And I do believe that sometimes there's, you know, that old saying, too many cooks in the kitchen. So while it's okay to have a great support team, you want to understand and make sure everyone knows their role. And I think some of the best pros and uh, tennis players who have been successful, those roles are very, very well defined. I'm not sure exactly when we're going to release this episode, but I just spoke to uh, a sports psychologist and he was talking about habits and his name's Dr. John Finn. So it'll, the episode will either be out already or people will be looking forward to it from here on out. But he was talking about um, when you're forming a habit, you know, who you surround yourself in your environment is super important there, right? And those people are either helping and hurting. And when you say too many cooks in the kitchen, I have so many players that come to me and they have a cook from an online coaching, you know, and they said this, this guy said this, and then their friend said this about their forehand. And then they heard a college coach one time say something different about a forehand and they have all these voices yeah, and it's, it's very overwhelming and they're not moving in one direction. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that one. The, the too many voices can be a, a big negative. I've always tried to make sure that if one of my players has a, a personal coach is to try to stay aligned. You know, because I'm not with any given player 365 days of the year. It, it's just not possible. Um, but I know like, okay, during the school year, I can tackle this thing. During the summer, they're going to be back home with their personal coach. And just, hey, it's it's with these things, it has to do with communication. Are we all on the same page? Or are we all trying to do the same thing? So 10,000 contacts for you. It, you were bound to have a lot of Instagram questions and there's more and more that people that respond to these. So it's been awesome. And I'm going to, you kind of touched on your playing background. And so I'm going to weave that into this first person, but the first person wanted to know what your best advice for someone trying to get into high school or college coaching would be. And I wonder if while you're answering that, you can kind of share briefly your path to becoming an assistant at one of the best schools in the country and now being a two-time coach of the year at SMU. Making the team and making college. First off, I think uh, you got to have the love of the game. And you have to have an understanding of what you're trying to shoot for. A lot of times with juniors or campers or you know maybe p- kids I'm working with, I ask them what their goal is. And it's like, oh, I want to make college tennis or I want to be a pro. But it's like also what do we take to get there? And how do we achieve that route? Because everyone can take a different pathway to get to kind of one of those goals. I do come at it from a different perspective and a different pathway in the sense that I love the game, and but I really wasn't. I didn't have the plain resume of Jonathan Stokey, that's for sure. And, you know, it was my own creative way. And how I ended up where I am is because I actually attended UCLA. I got in on my own and I did not have anything to do with tennis my very first semester of college. And I actually, you know, was not exactly clinically depressed, but I, what I was saying was it was a challenge. Having tennis not in my life was a huge void. And so all I did was I found a way to get back in. And then I kind of really found my strides in college and finding my place because it was really a passion. And I started helping out with the team. I, I approached Coach Billy Marwin, you know, January of 2001 at the start of my spring quarter of uh, freshman year. And after that, you know, the rest was kind of history. Um, and so finding exactly what your strengths are is, I think, probably start number one. 
Um, me, I love the game. I love the game, but I was the guy that lost first or second round while Johnny was in the finals of Kalamazoo or whatever other tournament he was very accomplished in. And, you know, it was fun to watch that and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, I was already back home for eight days. And uh, as you're trying to strive for these goals and making the team, doing the simple drills very well. You know, pros, college players, everyone, a lot of the drills are very, very similar. You know, but it's who executes those the best at the toughest and most high-pressure situation. You know, the pros, you see them, they're doing cross courts and down the lines and changing directions and really basic fundamental things that I think college players are also doing and juniors are doing and people at an early age. It's just how proficient are you at these drills? And something really important, like, yes, there's only so many different drills out there and it's how you change it and get creative. But I think as a player, it's easy to think like, you know, these drills are not good or not productive for me. And my rule of thumb is sort of like the drills don't suck. You suck at the drill. And I think it's important to do these very simple drills very well. And one of the best pieces of advice I got from a, from a coach was how can you deliver a message to a player so they hear you the best? So you might coach player A this way, but against player with player B, you've got to deliver it a different way. And that was something I'll always remember because part of it is us as coaches, we can't just figure out that you deliver it the same way and every player hears you the same way and cookie cutter. We've got to be very conscientious of how players hear us. So it's almost like you can predict the future because that was the next question from a listener was the best advice you were, you have received from a fellow college coach. What, what, or how do you figure out, you know, of course there are tennis principles that I want to communicate to my players, but my players are very differently. How do you go about as a coach figuring out the best way to deliver that message to the player? A trial and error. I mean, I've, I've failed miserably many, many times with some of my players with the delivery. You just keep trying, you know, and I've, I've done this and I've experimented with different tones, verbiage, you know, is it a one line text? Is do we have a conversation the night before, but sometimes how you deliver the message is just as important as the message itself, you know, and, and I think sometimes uh, a parent and a child, it, it's a little bit of the same thing is maybe they don't want to hear from mom and dad, but maybe if it comes from, you know, yourself or myself or a, a mentor, a friend, it might actually resonate better. I worked with a great coach a couple of years ago. And I forget what the name of the psychological phenomenon is, but it's like everybody wants to be Christopher Columbus, right? So Jeannie, my wife, used to be a great golf player. She was a golf coach at Duke. That's how we met. And of course, I give her videos of my swing all the time. And she'll, you know, she might give me a tip, you know, maybe it's a uh, turn more on your backswing, whatever. And kind of working on it. And then like seven months later, I'll show up and I'll be like, oh my God, I was hitting the ball so great. And you know, this new thought I had was just that I'll turn a little more on the backswing. And she's like, oh, you know what's crazy is I've been telling you that for the last six or seven months. Like you didn't figure that out, but it took that long to kind of seep into my brain and I almost right. had to make it my own discovery. And so right. I try to give myself that leeway when I'm trying to communicate something to players. Sometimes they have to process that and own it. And it's not just as easy as message was verbally sent, player received it, and then player acted on it. 10 seconds later, like that's usually not the process. Agree. Agree. And, and, you know, for the listeners out there, you know, uh, uh, someone who's been a huge friend and mentor to me, Paul Anacone, um, his book is phenomenal. I've read it 
many, many, many times. It's not about tennis. It's about life lessons. It's about different things like that. And, and, you know, he always mentions and talks about that when he coached Roger or Pete and, you know, here you are, you're coaching one of the greatest players of all time, um, both of them. And, and how do you help allow them to process information? And, you know, he would always kind of joke that he needed a kind of, you know, lead it to a way where they almost felt that it was their decision or their choice or their discovery. Two part question here. Doubles is a, is a huge part of collegiate tennis. What is your best doubles advice? And then what is your favorite doubles drill or the drill you do the most with your team at SMU? Yeah, you know, actually, I, I loved actually the one you just posted recently with um, Coach Calbus about the one not bouncing. Uh, I, I actually play it a lot. We call it bounce it. You know, it, it's, it's just the, but the, the concept's the same. The two people on net, you don't let it bounce. Um, I, you know, I know Coach Calbus called it something different, but you know, I think that's always a good one. And I happened to just see that video the other day. And so it, it was kind of fresh. But the other one I, I really think is important in doubles is isolating certain parts. And, it, you know, it can be done with three people. So uh, a server, the server's partner, and then the returner on the other side. And everyone plays a role um, at each one of those spots. Um, I think mixing in learning how to return lob, the punch lob is great. And then also the volley drop shot to bring people forward. Um, and I think by doing doubles drills with three people, um, you can do it with four or five or six or anything like that. But the idea is that there's three positions to kind of isolate and focus on. And everyone at each position has a specific concentration of what they're focusing on. So the returner is working on returns, placement, things like that. The, the person at the net, the service partner, you know, maybe they're working on crossing or poaching or trying to take the return. And then the server is obviously working on, um, you know, serving in doubles, which it, it is a little different mindset. You know, I, I don't really think you need to be going for a ton of aces. I think it's important to really be strategic and body serve, I think is really one of the best body forehand jam. Um, uh, you know, I, I tell my guys this all the time. I think a lot of times they're going for too many aces and then what that ends up doing is they might get a couple aces, but then the returners are also getting a lot of second serve looks. You know, whereas if you're making 90% for serves, they might not be as big, but you have a partner at net to help clean things up. So, you know, I, I think you you take a couple of these things to really try to isolate specific double skill sets and target them and then repetition, 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 where you know you can do things so well. Um, Austin Krychek uh, lives in Dallas, so I get to see him quite a bit now. Um, you know, and it's amazing. I, I'll watch him practice and I'll watch him compete. And like these guys at the highest level, they don't miss first volleys. They don't miss returns. They don't miss second serves. They don't miss pickup volleys and overheads. You know, same thing with Rajiv and, you know, all the best doubles players is that other team has to beat you. They, it's such tiny, tiny margins. So really doing these little things well is so important. It's it's kind of like what you're talking about with the team around you, but just my own experience in doubles, I'm, I'm always one of those four things. I'm the server, the returner, the server's partner, or the returner's partner. And I always have a job to do. And I always got in trouble if I tried to do someone else's job. So, okay, their serve's not great. So I'm going to try to poach so they don't have to deal with the first ball. So now I'm poaching on a really difficult return or whatever. And that's when I played my worst. And when I played my best was just going, this is my job. I do it very well. I cannot control my partner, but I can control myself. And if I'm just the best version of me, that's what helps the team the most versus 
stressing about what everyone else is doing and then forgetting the one task that I had to do. Does that make sense? No, it, it absolutely does. And you, and you hit the needle on the head, which is, you know, I think when you try to do too much or, and so to speak, carry your partner, I, I think that's when things really get out of line. And, and, you know, my wife, she is so passionate about tennis and league tennis and, you know, mixed doubles, nine Oh, and ladies four five and four Oh, and all these different things. And she's always talking about these combinations and okay, so-and-so plays with so-and-so and that's great, but you know, they can't just think that, oh, this one player is going to carry this other player because they're so much better. And it, it may work out once or twice, but I also notice, and I've been in the same boat on both sides where, you know, if your partner is trying to do too much, too little, and they're almost trying to cover too much of the court, you force a game that isn't really your own. And, you know, at the root of it, you've got to let your partner play. You've got to trust who is, you know, by your side throughout the entire match. I'm going to leave our standard finishing question very open-ended for you, but what is your best advice for the 4-0 player? Yeah, well, first off, I think from a from a double standpoint, and this, one, this one's pretty specific, and you kind of touched upon it, and I think it's good for any 4-0 player to know, four people on a doubles court, okay? Server, server's partner, returner, returner's partner. There's only one individual hitting the ball at any given moment which means 75% of the court is not playing tennis. But how do you always stay involved and engaged in the point while you're not playing tennis? So when you're not hitting the ball, and I think that's important, is I think it's easy to think like, okay, I'm going to work on my volleys, I'm going to work on this. But to be able to understand the game and your positioning when you're not hitting the tennis ball could be as pivotal as anything. Because if you can put yourself in the right position on the court, Sometimes that's almost as effective, um, even more effective than the one hitting the ball. You know, if I if I can put myself in a position at net to apply a little extra pressure on you while you're hitting your return or you know anything like that, maybe I can force an error out of you. So um, I, I think understanding kind of the intangibles and the positioning of a, a doubles match, and I, and I only use doubles as an example because. Um, it's it's such a great component of tennis and you know league tennis and everybody. It it really is such a fun part and you know I've I've been a part of a few mixed doubles leagues when when my wife is the captain and and actually invites me to play. So I, I you know I try to be a good teammate and a good partner as well. Um, and, and it's a lot of fun, but um, it's an incredible game. It's a lifelong game and it's just a true passion. And I'm I feel very lucky to be in this sport. Quick, quick follow up there. When you talk about positioning off the ball, you're not the one hitting. Is there a common mistake or error that you see people making? Is there a positioning off a return or covering the alley too much? Is there anything that you see that, that could help someone with their positioning? You know, one thing for sure is if you look at it not from a I cover the ad court, you cover the deuce court, and then the service middle line, you know, divides it. I would look at the, the you know the dividing line as a diagonal. So from one service box cross you know cross other and so you kind of find this kind of no man's land area and almost like a blind spot. So if you are hitting the ball into this little blind spot, I think it can be very very effective, but I think looking and dividing the court up, you know, in a at an angle so your partner can cover for example behind you with the lob but you are also looking to cross. So kind of thinking of that visually. Um, and, you know, maybe if we draw a diagram later when this is uh, published to be able to get a little bit better 
idea about it, it, it could help. But I think the idea is is to try to stick with you know the high percentages and to understand kind of where you and your partner can optimally cover the court. Grant, can't thank you enough for coming on. And you know sometimes people honor you with their words, and sometimes people honor you with their actions. And we've been recording for almost forty five minutes. And unless you've been sneaky about it, you haven't checked another phone for a text message, which has to be the longest stretch I've ever been in your company where you're usually getting a, a, a ding, a sound, an alert like every 18 seconds. So to have your undivided attention for 45 minutes has been incredible, but thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. And so much fun. And you know, you and I have had, had the opportunity to spend time with each other on the opposite ends of the court, coaching against each other, coaching on the same side. And, and it's great to be around a great company. All right, I want to thank Grant for coming on the show. He has a really cool story working his way up the ladder at UCLA, and now he's a really successful head coach at SMU. I obviously wanted to have him on because he is so incredible at building a support team around a player. And for you at home, I want you to think who is on your team? Who is your main coach that's steering the ship? Do you have anyone helping you with your fitness or your mental coaching? And who are your like-minded friends that are either inspiring you or dragging you down? If you want to improve as quickly as possible, make sure you are surrounded with a great support team and then trust the process. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.